Tomorrow is Reformation Day. It's um, remembrance of October 31st, 1517, when Martin Luther nailed the 95 theses, those 95 points of discussion on the door of the All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Germany. And God used Luther's actions uh, far beyond what he ever anticipated. It spawned a reformation of the church that affected not just the church, but all of society. It placed a renewed emphasis on the authority of the Word of God. It was a recovery of the gospel of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. It was also a recovery of the doctrine of justification by faith and not by works. The, Reforma <coughs> the Reformation, I believe, was the greatest revival in the history of the world. So on the last Sunday of October, I like to preach a sermon that's connected to the Reformation in some way. The stand that Luther and others took for the Word of God and for the gospel really did change the world. It, it, it took hold in Germany, Switzerland, France, Hungary, spread through much of Europe, ultimately into England as well. It was in England that some began to take the Reformation ideas even further than the original Reformers. They began to see in the Scriptures that baptism is meant for those who have consciously put their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So it's believers' baptism. They also understood the doctrine of Christian liberty more thoroughly than the earlier Reformers. They, they did not believe that there should be a state church where the government decided which brand or what denomination of Christians the people should be. Instead, there was to be liberty of conscience. So there were Baptist churches that began to spring up, particular Baptist churches, as they were called, go back as far as 1616 uh, in England and began to spread little by little. Uh, they were called particular Baptists because their theology was in line with what was nicknamed Calvinism and believed uh, that God was sovereign in the work of salvation. The particular Baptists were a key part of the heritage of the Southern Baptist denomination that our church is a part of. The man that we're going to be looking at this morning was in the line of those English particular Baptists. His name was Hercules Collins. He was born in 1646 and died in 1702. He was a pastor who served a church in London, England. And he served during a time when Baptist churches endured significant persecution from the government under the influence of the Anglican church. Now, to guide us in our study of Hercules Collins, we'll be looking at Psalm 17. This psalm is a prayer of David uh, during a time that he was being persecuted. We aren't told the specific situation he was in, but it's a good possibility that it's from the time that Saul was uh, chasing him, trying to kill him, and different aspects of that time period might be when this came from. So we find in these verses really some significant help when a Christian is dealing with persecution with oppression in connection with their Christian faith. There's three main sections in this psalm. Verses uh, 1 to 5, we see David crying out to the Lord because of what is happening to him while he's still holding firm to his faith. Crying out to the Lord while holding firm to his faith. Second section is verses 6 to 12. In those verses, David speaks of the Lord's great love for him in the context of deadly enemies who were out to get him. And in third uh, section is verses 13 to 15. David prays for deliverance, but ultimately speaks of finding his joy in the Lord. 
So our first main point this morning is this. In times of oppression, believers are encouraged to cry out to the Lord for help while holding fast to the word of the Lord. Let's look at me, read for you verses 1 through 5 of Psalm 17. It says, Hear a just cause, O Lord. Give heed to my cry. Give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. Let my judgment come forth from your presence. Let your eyes look with equity. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. As for the deeds of men, by the word of your lips, I have kept from the paths of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. We hear just really the desperation in David's situation when three times in the first verse he asked God to hear his prayer. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Give heed to my prayer. Give ear to my prayer. So he recognizes really how desperate his situation is, and he knows that the only one who can really help him is the Lord. I mean, so his disturbed heart is really craving the attention of the God of all justice. Well, David describes his situation as a just cause. And what he's saying, he says, does not come from deceitful lips. In other words, he's being completely honest and transparent with the Lord. In the next several verses, he speaks of his innocence. In verse 2, he says, Let my judgment or my vindication come from your presence. He invites God to look on what is going on and see that David is not the one at fault here. In verse 3, he says God has tried his heart. He's visited him by night. He's tested him. And the result is that David is innocent. And then he speaks of how he has purpose not to sin with the things that he says. He also says in verses 4 and 5 that he has not traveled the same path as his oppressors have trod. Their deeds are wrong. They lead to violence because they have not followed God's path. David, on the other hand, has held fast to the ways of the Lord. Now, one thing to keep in mind here, to make a distinction, David is not claiming perfection for himself. Instead, what he's saying is, in this particular situation, where these men are coming after him in violent ways, he is not guilty of what they say he is guilty of. Well, the same was true for Hercules Collins. He lived in England at a time where anyone who would not worship according to the Anglican way was guilty of a crime and could be put in prison. It was a very tumultuous time, really, in British history. It involved, uh, ultimately, just to kind of give you a little bit of the history, uh, it goes back to uh, the, the, the Puritans, who were ministers who were part of the Church of England beginning around the 1560s. Their goal was to purify the church and cause it to be more biblical. Well, there's differences between them and others within the Anglican church and some without but that escalated really to the point until a civil war actually broke out in 1642. The Puritans ended up winning that war. They removed the king of the monarchy, who was Charles I, and installed Oliver Cromwell as the Lord Protector. Cromwell was willing to let various Christian groups have the freedom to worship, whether they were Anglican, Presbyterian, Independent, Baptist. He gave them freedom to worship. Well, when Cromwell died, the monarchy was restored, and Charles II became king. 
the agreement was that he would allow that, that that he would be allowed to rule as king if he would continue to give religious liberty like Cromwell did. Well, he promised to do it, but it didn't happen that way. Instead, a number of laws were passed that were known as the Clarendon Code. Between 1661 and 1665, three laws were passed that ended up causing major problems. First was the Corporation Act. That required anyone who held public office to take communion within the Anglican Church. They needed to be within the Anglican Church if they were going to hold any sort of public office. The second was called the Conventicle Act. That made meetings that did not follow the Anglican worship pattern to be illegal. And the third was the Five Mile Act. That prohibited any non-Anglican minister from living or even temporarily lodging within five miles of any town. They were trying to keep them from having any influence whatsoever on any uh, large group of people. The rulers of England at that time were determined that those with Puritan-type beliefs would never again be able to have political power or significant influence in Great Britain. So they did all they could to cripple them, especially to keep them from gathering to worship. So these non-Anglican churches and their ministers were under great oppression, really from 1560, or I'm sorry, 1660 to like 1688, almost 30 years. <coughs> Anyone who was outside of the state church was harassed, and the ministers uh, would be put into prison. It was during this time that Hercules Collins served as pastor of, I'm not sure exactly how to say this, so I'm going to say Wapping, pastor of Wapping Church in London, England. He served from 1677 until 1702. This was a particular Baptist church. <clears throat> in fact, it was one of the oldest Baptist churches in existence. It actually started in the 1630s. We don't know much about Hercules Collins' uh, early life. Uh, it would be interesting to find out why his parents named him Hercules. We don't know. Uh, we know that he was raised in a Christian home. Uh, he, we know he was a tailor by profession. And it was during the late 1660s, which would have been his early 20s, that he became serious about his commitment to Christ. And we know, too, that in the 1670s, he was a member of a particular Baptist church in London and may have received some pastoral training there. One of the effects of the Clarendon Code, those Clarendon Code laws, was that ministers were not, who were not part of the Anglican church were not allowed to attend universities to receive training. And the majority of universities really were for religious instruction, and they were not allowed to attend those. So the training was often done within the local church. Collins was appointed as pastor about one year after the previous pastor died. And after 10 years, the membership was around 140. By the time of his death in 1702, it had doubled to about 280. Now, one thing that's important to note, I mean, obviously the church grew. But it's especially important to note that it grew in the context of harassment and violence against them. That brought growth. Well, it was during this time as pastor that Hercules Collins was arrested for violating the Five Mile Act. In the midst of these, of these laws against their meeting as a Baptist church in an Anglican country, 
they kept meeting. And from what I've read, his church never missed a Sunday. They continued to meet all the way through. Collins was placed in the Newgate prison in 1684. He was actually cited for failing to attend the local Anglican church in the summer of 1683, so basically was given a warning. But he continued to pastor his church, his Baptist church, and then, and then when he was arrested, here's what the words of the church's minutes say. They say, by the providence of God, our pastor Hercules Collins was taken from us and committed prisoner to Newgate. Just the way they say that is we understand this is by the providence of God that our pastor has been arrested and he's now in prison. They knew it was unjust, but they also knew that it was within God's providence that their pastor was now in jail, in prison, not in jail, but in a prison. Now, one of the things that may have especially put him on the radar of the authorities was a track that he wrote about two years before. And as you know, titles of these writings were long. So let me read the title. It was this, Some Reasons for Separation from the Communion of the Church of England and the Unreasonableness of Persecution upon that account. So you know exactly what it was about. Well, by the time, that that was obvious. Well, in light of this, Hercules Collins would be in full agreement with what David prayed in these first few verses of Psalm 17. His cause was a just cause. He had done nothing that was deserving of persecution from the civil authorities. In fact, Collins was the one who was in the right on this issue. As I mentioned, the church continued to meet for worship in spite of it being illegal. And as much as possible, Hercules Collins continued to be their pastor, continued to pastor them. On your outline is the title of a book of meditations or sermons that he wrote for his church to use in their worship while he was in prison. The title is this, A Voice from the Prison or Meditations on Revelation 311 Tending to the Establishment of God's Little Flock in an Hour of Temptation. Revelation 311 says this, it says, I am coming quickly, hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. So Colin says he wanted to be he wants he wants to be faithful to the Lord even when he's in prison and he wants his church to hold fast to the truth during this time. He spoke of in the, in those uh, in that work he spoke of the witness of the gospel that is given when Christians endure suffering under the lordship of Christ for a worthy cause. He talks about they must stand firm for the gospel and they must speak of the truth of the scriptures. In Psalm 17, 5, David speaks of holding fast to the paths of the Lord. He says his foot had not slipped. He was holding fast to the paths of the Lord. Well, we see from these early verses of Psalm 17 that when we are in times of trial, that we should go to the Lord in prayer about all that's going on. Be honest with him and trust that he hears our prayers. But we also have to be sure that we are standing firm on the truths of the faith. Our feet must not slip under the pressure that's around us. 
Collins was very much aware of the need for believers to hold firm to sound doctrine. It was in 1689 that the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith was reaffirmed. It also was first came out in 1677. Well, Collins was the, the fifth name on the list of ministers who signed that confession, indicating their agreement and endorsement of the doctrines it explained. In 1680, he does something else to show the importance of sound doctrine for the Christian. He wrote a catechism to teach doctrine in a clear and concise way. Here's the title of that work. The title is An Orthodox Catechism Being the Sum of Christian Religion Contained in the Law and the Gospel Published for Preventing the Canker and Poison of Heresy and Error. That was the title. There are so many influences that open us up to canker and poison of heresy and error. And if we're going to hold fast to the paths of the Lord and make sure our steps don't slip, then we have to be careful and think carefully about biblical doctrine. On your outline is the opening sentences of that catechism. Actually, this was the opening sentence as far as the introduction uh, to the catechism. Here's what it says. He says, Now that you may not be shaken, scattered, and carried away with every wind and blast, every puff and breath of error and heresy. I have in charitable regard to your souls presented you with this small, but I am bold to say, sound piece of divinity. So it's so important that we learn from history. We are just as vulnerable to error and heresy in our day as they were in the 17th century. And especially when the Christian faith is under attack from multiple angles, we've got to be careful not to be shaken and carried away in the process. So we're to stand firm in the same way believers did before us. We need to pray that our God would hear our prayers. We give careful attention to the truth that will shield us from error. David did that. Hercules Collins did that. And we're supposed to do that as well. Well, in verses 6 through 12, we see this second main point from Psalm 17. In the face of deadly enemies, believers are to take prayerful refuge in God's love for them, in God's love for them. Verses 6 to 12, David continues to pray, but he makes some important additions to his prayer. Here's what he says. I have called upon you. For you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my speech. Wondrously show your loving kindness, O Savior of those who take refuge at your right hand from those who rise up against them. Keep me as the apple of the eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who despoil me, my deadly enemies who surround me. They have closed their unfeeling heart. With their mouth they speak proudly. They have now surrounded us in our steps. They set their eyes to cast us down to the ground. He is like a lion that is eager to tear and as a young lion lurking in hiding places. Once again, then in verse 6, David calls on the Lord to hear and answer his prayer. He asks God, I love this, this image, to incline his ear toward him, to make sure he's hearing, incline his ear. And hear the, hear the things, hear what I'm, what I'm getting ready to say. He just knows how desperately he needs the Lord in a time that was a very dangerous time for him and for his church. 
well, sorry, David for him. And then David elaborates on his request. In verses 7 and 8, there's just some beautiful pictures here of, of David speaking of God's love for his children. He speaks of his marvelous or just wondrous loving kindness. It's a God-honoring wonder how he comes to the aid of his people. He's a faithful Savior to those who take refuge at his right hand. The right hand is the place of safety, the place of power. He's trusting God to protect him from people who are rising up against him. And this show of God's loving kindness, it's important to note here, this is not just a request for physical protection. I think it includes that. But it's not just a request for physical protection. I think more importantly, it's a request to know God's loving kindness in his heart, to have his inner man be strengthened and renewed and assured of God's gracious love to him in a time when he's under attack from people who are trying to kill him. I want you to know your love now more than ever. He speaks of the Savior keeping him as the apple of the eye. Now, literally, what that says is speaking of the pupil or the daughter of the eye. There is no part of the body, when you think about it, that we are more protective of than our eyes. So this is a prayer to know, to know well God's very careful and personal, loving care, even in the midst of a dangerous situation. When there's threats to the eye, he's, he's going he's to guard the eye. The Lord enabled Hercules Collins to know this himself, to know this careful, personal, loving care of God when he and other believers were going through those times of great threats and suffering. He understood how fierce the persecution was, but he was also convinced of God's good and wise providence. He wrote about this in reference to his time in prison. He said, it was reason to bless the Lord because he was making good on his promise. The promise was this. He's quoting from Jesus from John 16, 33. The promise is, in the, word, in the world, you're going to have tribulation. So he's reflecting on that promise. In the world, you're going to have tribulation. But he also says, take courage. I have overcome the world. And in connection with that word, Jesus Christ promised peace to his disciples. Collins further says this when he's, when he's, as he's meditating on that, and part of this is on your outline. He says, Blessed be God, we have bread for the day. As is the day, so, is our, so our strength has been. God is as good in prison as out. We are content to be where our Father will have us be, for that place is best. If God will by his, pres his providence open a door for liberty, that is best. If God will shut the door, that is best. I love that phrase. God is as good in prison as out. Those are just wonderful insights. I mean, if we could understand and believe those things, it would enable us to endure even the most difficult of times even when it includes persecution for the faith. While Collins was in prison, several of his minister friends died. We'll talk a little bit about what the place was like, that, he, that the prison was like, but several of his friends died. In light of their deaths, he wrote this. This is on your outline too. 
He wrote, Communion with God by the Spirit is a good cordial to keep up the heart from fainting in this valley of tears. To keep the heart from fainting in this valley of tears. He knew God's presence in the prison cell. The Lord gave him true endurance in a situation where friends had died. Friends had died because they had been unjustly put in prison for their faith. And even in prison, he was enabled to understand the Lord was guarding him as the apple of the eye. He was hidden in the shadow of his wings. So if the Lord can do that for people enduring life-threatening trials like David did and Hercules Collins did, he can do that for us whenever we're in those hard trials. Look what David, look again at what David further prayed in verses 9 to 11. He says, From the wicked who despoil me, my deadly enemies who surround me, they have closed their unfeeling heart. With their mouth they speak proudly. They have now surrounded us in our steps. They set their eyes to cast us down to the ground. He's like a lion that is eager to tear and as a young lion lurking in hiding places. So David's making it even more clear how much danger he really was in. He said, these people, these people are wicked. Now, they claim to be believers in God. I mean, they're Jewish. They were the people of God. But he says, they're wicked. They are deadly enemies who, have, who literally, and I think you say figuratively, surround David. They are actively against him. They have unfeeling hearts. In other words, they were calloused. And they had no regrets about the evil things that they were doing. They speak proudly. They're seeking to cast us down to the ground. So after trusting the Lord to care for him and to show his personal care and love for David, then David gets very specific about how bad the situation really was. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He said, this is bad. The same thing was true for all those Christians who would not bow to the government's demand to only follow the Anglican mode of worship. All those who refused refused this were called dissenters or nonconformist. This would include Presbyterians, Congregationalists, Independents, Baptists. Michael Haken talks about what these congregations had to deal with. This, This is also in your outline. He says, a group of thuggish informers known as the Hilton Gang terrorized London dissenters, spying on their worship services, reporting them to the authorities, participating in their prosecution, and seizing their property if they could. Can you imagine going to worship at your church, first knowing what you were doing was against the law, And second, knowing very likely there was going to be people there to spy on you. To see what you were doing. That'd probably make you think twice before you went to church, wouldn't it? They went, like I said, they never missed a Sunday. In Psalm 17, 12, David describes his enemies as being like a lion that was lurking in hiding places, ready to pounce and tear his prey. So that was what was going on there. Those who were arrested would be fined, and the one who turned them in would get a share of the money. And even to the point of some of their property, if that 
like 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 Haken said, they were going for that as well. Congregations did did a number of different things to try to avoid being found out. Some congregations met at night, some met out in the forest, some met in caves. One group I read about met in an area where three different counties intersected. So if the county agents from one particular county came to arrest them, they would cross the boundary into the adjoining county where those people had no jurisdiction. That was their way of doing it. One minister I read about preached from behind a curtain so that the informers would not be able to identify who it was that was there. Some built trap doors, fake doors, to try to, so they could get out quickly. We know that between 1682 and 1686, in London alone, just in London, there were 3,800 dissenters who were arrested and tried for illegal worship. And it's been estimated that between 5,000 and 8,000 dissenters died in prison under that Clarendon Code. The Newgate Prison, where Hercules Collins was held, was the most notorious prison in 17th century England. It was a horrible place. It was cold. There was no heat, not even fireplaces. It was dark, damp, poorly ventilated. Outbreaks of various diseases among the prisoners were common. Here's a quote from Michael Haken about this place. He says, the novelist Henry Fielding, who was lived between 1707 and 1754, he sought to capture the horror of imprisonment in Newgate when he termed the English prison system a prototype of hell. It was a prototype of hell. That's where Hercules Collins and other dissenting ministers were imprisoned. That is what really could be a consequence for any Christian who persisted in worshiping in a non-Anglican church. Again, how would that affect our worship at our church? Would the command, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, would that still apply? When we're still, when we're thinking about all these things. In our nation, of course, you know this, Christianity is not valued like it once was. In fact, Christians are likely to be considered bad guys now more than good guys. But it's not as bad as it was in England, at least it's not yet. But remember the context of this paragraph. David is telling us that in the face of deadly enemies, we're to take prayerful refuge in the love of God. That's not just a neat Bible verse. That's a truth that we have to put into practice. Taking prayerful refuge, knowing that God is guarding us like somebody would guard the apple of the eye. And trusting him to do that. In the final verses of Psalm 17, we see this third main principle. In the midst of furious attacks, believers fervently pray for deliverance, but also rejoice in the eternal delight and fullness of joy in the Lord. Look at verses 13 to 15. Arise, O Lord, confront him. Bring him low. Deliver my soul from the wicked with your sword. From men with your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life and whose belly you fill with your treasure. They are satisfied with children and leave their abundance to their babes. As for me, 
I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. So as the attack from David's perspective seems to be getting more furious, David's prayer becomes more fervent. He has asked God to know his wondrous loving presence and care in the middle of threats and attacks on the enemies, as we saw in the earlier verses. He's confident the Lord is keeping him under the shadow of his wing, guarding him as the apple of the eye. But in verse 13, he asked for something further. He asked the Lord to arise. In other words, I want you, I'm asking you to take action here. Do not allow these wicked men to continue with what they are doing. Arise and forcefully confront them. Bring them low in the sense of convicting them of sin or of humbling, humbling them because of the foolish and wicked things that they're doing. He asked for the Lord to deliver him from the sword of the wicked, really through the means of the sword of the Lord. In other words, Lord, bring an end to all of this. In the midst of trusting the Lord to help us endure, there is most definitely a place for asking God to rebuke and remove those responsible for the evil deeds. Hercules Collins and others prayed for this as well, and God heard their prayers. In 1688, William of Orange conquered the Anglican government of England without a battle. It was called the Glorious Revolution. The next year, the Toleration Act of 1689 was passed. It allowed for freedom of worship. Dissenters were still very much second-class citizens, but it did end the persecution that had been taking place for nearly 30 years. This, was most, this most surely came as an answer to the prayers of the believers. God brought them deliverance. One of the books that Hercules Collins wrote after the Toleration Acts uh, was called this. It was called The Temple Repaired. I didn't write down the rest of it, but the basic idea was The Temple Repaired. And it was a book about the importance of the local church. It was about the importance of training ministers to be sound in the scriptures and to ensure that biblical doctrine was always preached and taught in the church. Then the church would be ready no matter what the cultural climate might be. David made a realization in verse 14 that it's often the case that men of the world seem to do well. They seem to have everything they want, but he also recognizes that's really not true because they don't know the Lord, and that makes all the difference. Hercules Collins spoke of this as well. In one of his books, he wrote this. He says, Thou art my portion, O Lord, and though I have but little earthly good, having Christ, I have all, equivalently and comprehensively. Reminds me of Ephesians 1, where it says, In Christ, we have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There is not a single thing that's needful for our spiritual good that you and I have not received as Christians. Nothing has been left out. Every spiritual blessing means every spiritual blessing. Everything we could possibly need to grow and mature and stand firm in our Christian faith. We know that. It's easier sometimes to quote that Bible verse and just actually believe it, but it's true. 
I mean, I would imagine most any of us in here, if we're honest, would be able to make a list of things that we wish were different in our life. We've probably all, you may not have made a physical list, but we've got a mental list of things that I wish were different. I wish it wasn't like this. And if the idea is if it wasn't like this, it would make all the difference in my relationship with the Lord and in my own life. But that's not true. Because if you have Christ, you have what you need. There is one more thing that David included in his prayer as he considered the danger and trouble that he was in. In comparison to what the men of the world have, David says this in verse 15. He says, Now as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. So David has an eternal hope. No matter what the world may do, that hope would never fade. To behold the face of the Lord is to love and worship and be satisfied with him. And this especially moves to the eternal joy that awaits every believer. To behold his face involves being transformed into his image. It involves partaking of his righteousness. Because if we don't have his righteousness, we can't be in his glorious presence. We can't. But in Christ, we are made perfectly righteous. Jesus Christ earned the righteousness that every person needs in order to be right with God. And if we're in Christ, if we have put our faith in Christ, committed our life to him, we have the righteousness of Christ as our righteousness. It's a gift. And it's a complete righteousness that can't be improved on. It can't be improved on. And it can't be removed and watered down in any way. So there is a joy and satisfaction in the Lord that is true for us now and will continue to increase throughout eternity. We get glimpses of glory here, but there's a full feast that awaits us when we are glorified with the Lord. And once again, Hercules Collins has something to say about this. Quote there, says, A believer who hath the eyes of his understanding enlightened, his judgment and apprehension is that God is the chief good. God is the chief good, and supreme happiness is an interesting God, a conformity to God, the enjoyment of God here and hereafter. This is part of one of the sermons that he wrote for his church to use while he was in prison, and he specifically is making reference here to Psalm 17, 15, when he wrote this. So he says there's many good things that we can enjoy in life, but we must always remember that God himself is the chief good. He is the chief good. He said we can bear with the world's frowns when we have the smiles of God. And all this was written, remember, when he was being unjustly held in prison that was described as a prototype of hell. And fellow ministers were dying around him. And he was trying to encourage his church who were dealing with the same threats. It's the glory of the triune God that is our joyful hope, regardless of what the challenges around us might be. Lord, we do want to thank you again for your word.
I thank you that we, you have blessed us with copies of prayers like this from, from David that you inspired him to write and that's been handed down to us for thousands of years so that we could know how he was dealing with the, with the pressures and the oppression, the struggles in his life. It's so helpful to us. I mean, Christians have been dealing with these same kind of things again for generations. And even though it may not be prison, it may not be having your life threatened, we still know what it's like to be under serious trials. We know what it's like to feel like we need help, to feel like the situation just seems so bleak that I don't know what to do. And so a prayer like this that we, is a good prayer for us to pray. Lord, watch over me like the apple of the eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Let me know your wondrous love like I've never known it before. Help me to see that. I need to see that. And we also, in that context... We want to be sure that we are holding firm to all that we know to be true. Lord, help us just to have such a heart and such a, a passion for your word. I need that so much more in my own life than what I actually already have. Lord, thank you for your word and thank you for your love. And thank you for your deliverance. Help us to persevere. If you're one who's never put your faith in Jesus Christ, a prayer like this will be a way to start. Lord, I realize that I'm a sinner, that I do not measure up at all to what you've called me to be. But I want to receive Jesus Christ as my Savior. I want to follow him as my Lord. Even if things are difficult, I want to follow Jesus Christ as my Lord. If you want to talk in more detail about that commitment to Christ, that, then you can, uh, either, you can make a note in your tear-off or those who are uh, watching online can reach out to us through the website. It is in the name of Christ that we...